all you important peeps out there, and you know who you are because if you're listening to this, you are important to us. Welcome back to the next great episode of Game of Crimes. I am your host with the most, Tommy Bahama. I can say that. I know that for a fact on this podcast. Morgan Wright here literally with my partner in crime. Hey, everybody. It's Murph, and I will not argue with that at all. I think the only thing we have at Tommy Bahama is an umbrella on the beach. And that's a good place to be, which you're not out today because apparently uh, global warming isn't working because the seas are rising and attacking your beachhead wall out there, and you guys are being flooded. Yeah, I just looked out. Connie's sitting out there on the patio, but uh, she's not on the beach. Not yet. All right. Some beach somewhere, according to Blake Shelton. Anyway, hey, guys, thanks for doing just some quick housekeeping. Before we get into this next exciting episode, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. We really love it. It helps us out. Give us some feedback. Those uh, those ratings also let other people know about the podcast. And we're doing our darndest, our darndest to make sure a lot of people can hear these great stories. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com, for everything, for pictures, for books. We got lots and lots and lots of books yep. out there. We do. Lots of books. And we have a book coming out uh, with this next guest we'll be talking about here in just a moment. Follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But look, folks, you got to be on Patreon. Murph knows you got to be on Patreon. I know it. You know it. The American people know it. Why? Because we just got through doing, before we did this intro outro, we batch a lot of things. Mm-hmm. We did our Q&A for April. Yep. Good One work. hour and 30 minutes. Oh, we answer every question. Uh, we just did You Can't Make This Shit Up. Maggots, that's all I can say about it. Maggots, if you want to hear about maggots. And how long it took to find. This is the part, that's the part that will shock you. You're going to go, you can't make this shit up. No, you can. This was our UK edition with the story from Georgia and Ohio thrown in. uh, The state, not the country. And Uh, Australia. And Australia. And Australia in there. That's right. That's Actually, that's one of the stories where you wanted to take justice into your own hands. Mm -hmm. But head on over there because we had a lot of great stuff. We've got 911, what's your emergency? We've got... Um, our case of the month, you know, and we do our narcometer review. Lots of great stuff. So go to patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's patreon.com slash game of crimes and get your game on with us. Also, you want to have fun? Head on over to our Facebook fans page, Game of Crimes fans, run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Right, Absolutely. Love Sandy. And she's recovering. Hopefully she's good now. Is she good? I think so. All right. She's recovered. Has to be because she has to deem whether or not you are worthy of entrance into the inner sanctum. We call the Game of Crimes Fans uh, Club. So the group. So head on over there. Find out the stuff. Now, I got to tell you, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... We never take ourselves serious, as you know. So that's what makes it fun. And how do you know we don't take it serious? Well, because I think we're getting ready to have a little special segment called It's Time for Small Small Town Town Police Blotters. Yay! Hey, you know what I thought I'd do today? What? I thought I'd pick on another state. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) We're trying to bring listeners in and we're picking on states. Um, Well, guess what? Guess, Guess which one I did. Is it Florida again? No. I'm, I'm sharing the love. Oregon. I thought this day, this time we would pick on Oregon. Uh, well, there's a lot to choose from out there. <laughs> Target-rich environment. All right. Steve, 
Yes. You ever heard the old story, bringing a knife to a gunfight? Oh, yeah. That usually means bad, right? It's like, oh, you screwed up big time. Well, Derek Mosley is accused of attempting to rob a gun store with a bat. <laughs> he not only made Slate's Dumb Criminal of the Week, he was awarded the title Dumbest Dumb Criminal of Them All by Justin Peters, the writer of the column. Police say Mosley went to discount gun stores. There is your first clue. It says gun in the name mm-hmm. in Beaverton and tried to hold the place up with a bat. It's generally not a good idea to rob a gun store unless you are in a tank or you are yourself some sort of bulletproof robot. Mosley could have made things easier on himself by picking an easier target like Joanne Fabrics or the good ship Lollipop. However, Mosley's July 25th robbery attempt ended when the store manager, shockingly, drew his gun. Mosley was being held on the floor at gunpoint when the cops arrived. He's being held in the Washington County Jail on $2,000 bail. Every gun store I've ever been in, the people that work there carrying a gun, you think it's not loaded? You think it's just there for display? What a moron. What a moron. Uh, <laughs> hey, and remember now, Jacinta, not Hacinta, but remember Jacinta asked, have you ever, you know, solved a crime, you know, you know, just out of the blue when, you know, something unexpected happened? Well, mm-hmm. here it is. Fighting identity theft doesn't get any easier than this in Oregon. A 28-year-old man named David Henneman was asking his bank teller to freeze his account because someone had been cashing forged checks in his name to the tune of $700. Mm-hmm. What's an easy way to solve identity theft, Murph? Uh, you look at a picture of the person that's uh, supposedly frauding, defrauding you. Uh, either that or as you're talking, uh, the guy writing the bad check shows up next to you and attempts to cash another one. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> 37-year-old idiot Matthew Frombeck from Medford went to the next teller. He's behind this guy trying to close his account. He went to the next teller and cashed a check for $150. The bank was trying to figure out what was happening when Matthew got spooked and attempted to run away. That didn't last long as one of David's friends tackled him and restrained him until the police got there. The man was charged with a bunch of stuff. First-degree forgery, theft, criminal possession of a forged instrument, negotiating a bad check, disorderly conduct, fourth-degree assault, harassment, and resisting arrest. And being a dumbass in public. And in Oregon, he got out on cash bail and went off to commit even more crimes. I believe it. Well, he probably went up to Washington to do that. (laughs) All right. And as we always end when we do these sections, we're picking on a state, some of the dumbest laws in Oregon. Mm Mm-hmm. You ready? I'm ready. Can't have any weddings on ice skating rinks. Okay. I don't you know, know why, why, but why? They're afraid the groom or the bride might get cold feet. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> you fell into that. You shouldn't have said why, right? Okay. You are not allowed to whistle underwater. Can you do that? Is that even physically possible? Oh, I don't know. Don't I don't care. No. <laughs> really don't care. Shoelaces must be tied while walking down the street. There you go. Because you, Well, I mean, you don't want anybody to trip and hurt themselves. Well, your parents were always saying, hey, tie your shoes, right? But it's a criminal offense. And did you know if you're in Salem, Oregon, which is the capital, mm-hmm. women may not wrestle in Salem, Oregon? Well, that's discriminatory. That's, that's BS. Yeah. I want to know who to talk to about this. I guess they I, don't have women's mud wrestling out there, huh? Uh, well, they do, but it's in a little shack behind this place. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I was in Salem a couple years ago. Uh, no. 
I have no I have no idea about women wrestling in Salem. That would be illegal according uh-huh. to what I hear. Mm-hmm. Right? And guess what? In Springfield, you can't have any pet reptiles unless you're the school or a city. No pet reptiles. Okay. <clears throat> what if you have a, a snake on your property? Well, as long as it's not a pet, right? Yeah, it's not a pet. Not a pet, right? But yeah, you can't do that. Guess what you can't do in Yamhill? Uh, I don't know. You can't. You are not allowed to predict the future. <laughs> so there's no psychics out there, huh? Well, if they did, uh, you move to the next county. Why is that psychics never win the lottery either, right? Okay, never mind. <laughs> Good question. Marion County. If you're in Marion County, ministers are forbidden to eat garlic or onions before their Sunday sermons. What's in case a vampire comes in and they want to be converted? <laughs> All right. Jeez. I, if you're, uh, go ahead. <laughs> if you're in Hood River, you can't juggle unless you have a license. Okay. You're an unlicensed juggler. 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 What, what if you're juggling two or three jobs? Does that qualify? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Juggling is strictly prohibited. And Steve, this one is a front to all cops everywhere in Oregon. Mm-hmm. You cannot eat a donut and walk backwards on a city street in Marion County. Oh my gosh. Now that, that's, that takes talent. That's a deal breaker for me. I'm not moving to Oregon. That's it. <laughs> you know, the silly thing about this is, is something happened to <laughs> result in these laws being created. <laughs> <sighs> Okay, well, uh, let's get to the life? fun part. What's let's important get in fun. life? Yeah. yeah, let's get to the important stuff. Let's talk about outlaw motorcycle gangs. Let's talk oh, yeah. about infiltrating the pagans. Yeah. Let's talk about Ken Croak. You know what, this guy, I tell you what, it's an honor to have Ken on here. Um, I, I still think he needs Certif- professional CBA. help. Certified badass, yes. You're, oh, yeah, you're not kidding. And uh, as you'll hear in the show, he was he was originally brought to my attention by a friend, uh, Greg C., who's retired, DEA. And uh, I ignored him like I usually do, and and uh, <laughs> love you, Greg. And then uh, one of our friends, Pete Forselli, made an introduction of Ken Croak, retired ATF agent who started out at the bottom rung and made it all the way up to deputy director of ATF. I mean, he's right there at the top of the organization. But in his career, infiltrated the only police officer who ever became a patched member of the Pagans Outlaw Motorcycle Gang. And he was no their treasurer, and you're going to find out why he was their treasurer. Yeah. Don't, don't give it away. You got to find why did they make this dude the treasurer? Because when you give him treasure, it's like being Al Capone's bookkeeper. You know yep. everything. Well, and, and how they kept uh, letting him uh, break their rules to move up quickly just shows you here, they finally got someone with a brain in the pagans. Yeah. It only turned out to be an undercover ATF agent. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I, you know, I mean, now we all, we've heard of the Pagans and Hells Angels and, all, and Mongols, all the other uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs out there. I didn't realize that the Pagans were considered the most violent, the worst ones out there. I'll tell you what, and guess where they started? Where? Prince George's County, Maryland. There you go. Thank so, you, Maryland. Don't, for, don't, don't do that to us. By the way. He's got a book out there, too, and he talks about this, too. We're going to talk about it, too. It's called Riding with Evil, Taking Down the Notorious Pagan Outlaw Motorcycle Gang. And you read that, Murph, and I know there, there's some—you said it just gave you goosebumps. It does. It, there was, it, it's one of those books you can't pull down. There's things in there that are just disgusting beyond, beyond all belief what these guys participate in. But, uh, Ken, my God, I take, your hat, I take my hat off to you, brother, for what you did and, and what your family went through. 
Good job, my friend. Well, there's only one way we can hear from Ken. How's that? And I have to ask you, Murph, and in this case, it's really true. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all? The undercover version of Game of Crimes. You've heard it before. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Ken, (laughs) tell us why in the hell you wanted to infiltrate the pagans, brother. Well, if the pre-call or the pre-chat is any indicator of what's coming up, you folks are going to be going for one hell of a ride. You're going to be sick. You're going to be nauseated. <laughs> you're going to laugh. And when we talk about Hogman, which we will later, oh. <laughs> oh, oh. Murph's already going, oh, just what I heard. In the pre- anyway, before yeah, we I, get— I, I got to tell you, before you start that, when I was reading the book, my wife, I must have got this really disgusted look on my face when I read that part. My wife's looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? And I'm like, I can't even tell you. Well— <laughs> And, and 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 just to show you how small of a world it is, uh, before we got started, Ken and I were sharing, you know, backgrounds, where you're working now, what are you doing? And he brought up a name, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So, well, you tell my buddy, uh, A.M., we'll just use initials, A.M., I just ask him if his wife ever got pregnant. That's all I want to know, and if it was his. <laughs> oh, all right. Oh, hey, Ken, buddy. Ken Crow, retired ATF. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Honor to have you on here. We have some uh, some mutual friends. That is how we got the introduction to Ken. Uh, and shout out to Greg C. Uh, you still suck. But so we had to go to Pete. <laughs> I, I got to throw it out there because he gives me so much grief. I introduced you to Ken. I was willing to get out and make the introduction. So here we are. Love you, brother. Well, and as you guys have seen, too, uh, when you go to visit our book page, you're going to see his book up there called Riding with Evil about his infiltration into the Pagans Motorcycle Club, about a lot of the other stuff he did. Um, and, I, you know, Ken, you may not know this, but when you go look at our book page, I would say uh, we've got this. You'll be somewhere around episode 94 or something like that. I think we have 60 episodes at least with or 70 with books. I mean, a lot of people, and this is so great. Now, look, let's talk about you. Let's get into this now. So, hey, look, thing of ours, Colson Ostra. How did you get started in this thing of ours? Were you like just hanging around a bar one day? You know, the local police arrested you and said, hey, this could be a good youth. Maybe we ought to, you know, show them the straight and narrow. What happened to you? I mean, how did you fall off the wagon and end up doing this thing we call law enforcement? You know, I'll tell you, it was an uncharted course. So I went to college. <clears throat> My degree was in accounting. Where'd you and, go to college at? Hold on. Uh, UMass. And so, uh, you know, my family's, uh, you know, I have CPAs and finance folks in my family and I was supposed to be one of them. Um, and so I was like the great disappointment in my family because I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't sit behind a desk all day. And that's no disrespect to accountants out there. Um, but I just, it wasn't for me. And so when I was in college, um, you know, I, I paid for, you know, the majority of my education. And so, my brother actually got me a job at a retailer catching shoplifters and, um, and they paid, you know, helped me pay for school. Um, but I, I was really interested in it. And then I got involved in doing some internal employee theft and I was like, you know what? I kind of like, well, you were involved in the theft or investigating it, little, little goals, which probably helped me in the training. Um, yeah, I could find myself. Um, but they, you know, legitimately, I, like, I, I was interested in it. I'm like, you know what? I think I want to do this. Um, I, I, I never wanted to do the local, um, police thing. And I have all the respect in the world. I think it's one of the toughest jobs in the world right now. Um, but I really wanted to work investigations and, and that led me into federal law enforcement. Well, let's, let's rewind for a little bit. When you said you went to UMass, but where'd you grow up at? So I grew up in Mass, and um, which course, part? Went, 
uh, to Mass. So I was uh, grew up originally. I was in uh, Rosendale and then uh, out in Westwood. How come uh, you're not saying things like Sumner and Harvard and stuff like that? What happened to your accent? You know, part part of that was a deliberate loss, and actually, some because some of my uh, undercover backstories wouldn't match up with being from Boston, so I had to uh, I had to consciously work on getting rid of some of that accent. Yeah, we had Boston. He didn't lose any of it, but that's what I'm saying. I noticed you you got a pretty clean accent right now, so it'd be kind of hard to say you're from Texas and going, "Yeah, I parked the car over by the yard over there," and yeah, say "wicked I- pisser." When I started with ATF, they shipped me to LA. And what do they do? They put me, they, they put me in the arson group. And so, like, arson? In, yeah. And so, you have your call sign was arson, whatever. And man, it just never stopped. <laughs> I would call in and there'd be people harassing me. Uh, so, eventually, it, it whittled away. Well, but let's talk about you, you. But let's go back now to working the, the shoplifters and stuff. What was. Uh, what was the most one of the most unique things uh, you made an arrest on for shoplifting? I mean, were you working like adult stores? Were you working just retail, or uh, was there any good places you were working? No, nah, it was mostly for a big retailer, May Company, um, and and so I worked. Eventually, I ended up in the downtown store, their flagship store. And uh, w- what's really a joke about it is these guys aren't armed. That you have a set of handcuffs and you have a radio, but that's about it. And they're going up against some crazy people. Uh, cause people aren't shoplifting cause they want a new sweater. They're shoplifting cause they're going to steal and pay for habits and everything else. And so these people are highly motivated and, um, these people are chasing people in the subways. You know, we were, we got involved in all sorts of crazy brawls and everything else. And, and really with, you know, looking back at it and after being trained in law enforcement and doing the stuff that we've done, um, you realize how crazy it was to be running around the subways <laughs> with nothing but a set of handcuffs. Nothing but a handcuffs. You go there, you go bring a set of handcuffs to a gunfight, Skippy. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. not going to work out well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, not at all. So my hat's off to those folks who do it. Well, Damn you know, right. because that's such a difference between now and then, because now it's like you s- just see people going in and they're just ripping off stores. They're just nobody stopping them. They're going into the Apple store and stealing stuff. Back in the day, at least you would put the habeas gravis, as they say, on a few people and you know, at least uh, take them to jail or at least turn them over to the cops. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. Like these would get, so we would be uh, deputized as like special Boston police officers. So we had arrest authority and and we would we'd fill out the reports. We'd be the ones going to court testifying the whole nine yards. Um, now, like to your point, it's an accepted loss. They just kind of let it go. Yeah, but yeah, they let it go. But guess what happens? You got stores shutting down. You got people going out because they say, look, we can't take the loss anymore. I'll tell you, I don't know if you're familiar with a grocery chain called Wegmans. Yeah. Wegmans used to have, we used to go out there and shop. They used to have a really cool app where you could do your own self-checkout. So you'd scan it, and then you'd go up, and you'd scan it, and would you know, print out, okay, here's everything you got, pay for it. My wife and I would save an hour just from shopping because as we went along, I would pack the stuff into the bags. We'd be ready to go. They quit doing it. You know why? Too much loss. People, people, mm. I can't believe just people going there, how much they were ripping off, and they said, they quit doing it because they were losing so much to shoplifting and theft from doing it that way. Yeah, it's crazy. So, but but how did you but how did you how did you get into federal law enforcement though? So you're doing this stuff with uh, loss prevention, all these other things. But where did the bug come from, and why'd you pick ATF? Why not uh, you know DEA? You know marshals? You know friends don't let friends do the FBI. That's our one FBI joke for each episode, right? So. <laughs> or did you put in? Or are you going to tell us you did put in for FBI? Um, I put in for pretty much anybody who'd hire me. Um, so I, I filled out the, you know, I, the one thing I realized is I didn't want to do uniform patrol. I want to do investigations. Why? And, and, 
You know, I just, I, I really like the investigative component. I really like the who done it. You know, how, how do you, um, how do you investigate? How do you figure out, follow the trail and all that? And I felt like in the uniform side, you're doing a lot more of like the street patrols and all that. And eventually you could work yourself up to detective and what have you, but you jump into the federal side and guess what? You're a detective day one, you know, you're, you're working yeah. out there and you do an investigation. So, so I applied, you know, back then it was customs, secret service, um, FBI. Um, I don't know why I didn't apply at DEA, but I didn't, um, you know, you filled out the treasury exam and you kind of ended up being you know, back then ATF was under treasury and you ended up applying for all the agencies. Um, and so out of the gate, FBI, ATF and secret service, um, came knocking. And so I was going through their process and, and got offers, um, quickly from all three, but ATF and customs were, um, ahead of the game. I'm sorry, not customs, uh, secret service. And honestly, I was leaning towards Secret Service uh, only because I was a kid, right? And I, you heard of Secret Service. I never heard of ATF. And so um, I was kind of leaning that way. And, and an a, uh, investigator I worked with on internal uh, theft, he was doing credit card theft. He had said to me, he's like, hey, Ken, I know Secret Service sounds great. But, you know, after a while, you know, you, you do a whole lot of traveling, you get moved around a lot. You know, at some point you're going to have a family and that may not be such a good idea. And, and I know you like investigations and I think that ATF's more geared to that. And you have a lot of variety. You, know, you can do arson, explosives, you know, farms, what have you. And um, and so he's like, that would be my two cent opinion. I, I really respect this guy. And and so I uh, I took his advice and, and ultimately went with ATF. Funny you should mention that right up the street, I've got a neighbor who's on the VP protective detail. And I had some friends who are on the presidential protective detail, the PPD. The divorce rate for Secret Service agents is about 50%. I mean, it's a tough. But the other thing, too, is, you know, he steered you right because when you talk to a lot of these folks, they think, oh, I'm going to be doing exciting stuff. If you want to get on a protective detail the way you start off, you're guarding a door somewhere in a hotel and you don't see anything. I mean, you you are just a I mean, you're just standing post. That's all you're doing for hours on end. Well, and some of the some of these some of these people you're supposed to protect, I wouldn't jump in front of a bullet for them to free, no matter what. <laughs> That's why you went to DEA Murph and not Secret Service. You've got the wrong mindset. Hey, well, drunk you guys, every afternoon, brother. You guys remember um ATF was under um Treasury, which is you know where Secret Service was as well. And so uh, every four years we got buried in doing details. So let me tell you, one cycle through there, I was like, thank God I did not do this job because I'm not built for it, man. Standing by a dumpster, it's just not my my thing. Yeah, so. yeah you know, but I got to compliment you, Ken. After well, I just checked down some things, nobody ever stole a dumpster while you were guarding it. So you did well. <laughs> That's right. Good job. I did. Good job. They, they might have put 10 dead bodies in it, but they never stole it. Yeah, nobody's <laughs> taking my dumpster, not on my That's watch, right. folks. All right. right. That's, That's right. right. So, but, but, so you took, was there any other advice you got or was that investigator's advice the one that made you lean towards ATF? hundred percent is what he had said and um, went with ATF. And like I said, they weren't well known, you know, Waco happened a couple of years after I, I joined ATF and that put ATF on the map. Um, and so it was, you know, much more well-known after that. But yeah, no, I, I, I sounded like a good idea. A lot of um, breath in the types of investigations and sign me up and off I went. So you said when you graduated from UMass, what was your degree in? Accounting. Accounting? <laughs> I was going to ask you how, you know, it was like you got the accounting degree and now, see, most people with an accounting degree, they end up in the bureau, not ATF. Well, that's that's one of the reasons why I apply because they like it, lawyers and accountants. That's all they were hiring at that time. Um, yeah, or uh, you know, IRSCI. But um, but did ATF, you get any shit from anybody? <clears throat> they go, oh, we got Ken here, Mister Accountant, Mister CPA, applying for ATF. What are you going to well, do? Go undercover at a CPA meeting and uh, find well, out who's cooking the books. 
I told you they stuck me in the Arson group. Well, guess why? Because Arson almost always is for profit. And so Financial it ties motive, the money. Yeah. Right. So they stuck me in there. And here I am, a 24-year-old kid who just wants – I'm in L.A. It's like gangs everywhere. I want to go and work gangs, guns, and drugs. And, you know, I'm stuck doing arson stuff. So I literally did arson investigations dur- during the day. And at night, I would go out with the gang groups and work with them. Then I started doing undercover for them. And then pretty soon, they're like, listen, we- just put this guy in this group. We, uh, we can't have him straddle in two groups, you know, for, for the next 10 years. So we're uh, up. Yeah, so but when you went through, uh, were you guys were going through Glencoe at the time for basic training? Yes. How'd you, how'd you enjoy Glencoe coming from UMass? Uh, you know, it, I had no idea what I was getting into. I remember when we, when we pulled in, so I, I obviously uh, had been shipped out to LA. And so when I went to, um, you know, you have to go twice, you go for CI school and then you go back. Now they kind of, ma- you know, marry them up. So you're down there for six months. But back then you'd go to CI school, you'd go back to your field division and, and a couple of weeks What's later. What's CI stand for? Criminal investigator school, the CITP okay. program. And then you go back for your agency specific program and, and um, which was called new agent training NAT back then. And so, um, so yeah, so I, we jumped, you know, for me, it was, you know, a lot of people could drive there, but we're, being in LA, I had to fly out there. So I remember getting picked up at the airport late at night, put on a bus and we went in the back gate of Fletzy, like they open it and, and you know, the bus driver's getting out. It's like pitch black. You can't see. It. I'm like, man, if they off this whole bus, nobody's ever going to find <laughs> us. I'm gonna in the backwoods you. of Georgia <laughs> with some awful smell, what turned out to be the paper mills. Um, but I didn't oh, know back yeah. then. I'm like, where the hell am I? <laughs> Welcome I had to that Georgia. Same feeling <laughs> flying into Fort Lundwood, but that base that awful smell was the other ten guys on the bus with me too. Some of those guys hadn't showered for like a week. They're like, "Screw it, I'll, I'll shower when I get there." But uh, so so when you uh, so you fly out to LA first. Now, did you get your choice of where you wanted to go, or were, did you get your pick, or did they just assign you to go Ken Grote, LA? So back then they did interviews um, in the divisions, and so I interviewed in Boston. And they're like, hey, you, if you want the job, you should go interview in LA. So on my own dime, I flew out to LA and um, interviewed. And so I, you know, they basically said, you want a job? You can come to LA. But back, this is 1990. So LA was the Wild West and they needed agents. And every agent in their right mind that was out there was trying to get out of there and get somewhere else. And so we had a division full of new agents, uh, which is great. I, my, my, one of my training officers at one point had six trainees. So pretty much we got wow. to do whatever the heck we wanted to do because um, there, there was no one else to do it. Well, well when you got out there and you're assigned to arson and you said you started doing things at nighttime with the uh, running, you know, having the fun stuff. How did you get involved in undercover? What, what was the attraction there for you to, to want to work UC? You know, I, I had done it in the academy environment. I thought, hey, this is kind of cool, you know. Um, now, it's way different in the academy environment. And, and I'll be honest, one of the motivators, especially being out in L.A., is um, there at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of minority agents. And everyone kept saying, hey, you know, you've got to be this. You know, you got to be a female. you got to be African-American. you got to be Hispanic, whatever, to infiltrate these groups. And um, and I'm not talking long-term infiltration, you know, like the, what the book's written about, but just to, to go buy a gun or buy some drugs. And I always felt that it wasn't true. It was always the story that you went in with. And so um, <clears throat> early on, I did um, a, you know a fair amount of undercover with MS, you know, the gang MS. And it was because I had a white female informant. She was basically well, a prostitute. Tell everybody, too, we have a rule about acronyms, and you're violating it, Ken. I'm going to have to penalize you. I'm well, going to have to call tell up. tell me the rules. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did. You just ignore the rules. It's obvious. Murph's read your book. That's, that's now, the story uh, of my life. Are you talking MS-13, MS as in MS-13? or Yes, MS-13, Maris Alpachucha. 
Yeah, the troops of El Salvador. I mean, they were at that time too. They were pretty damn violent in L.A., weren't they? They they were the old school burn marks from the military. Yeah, um, it's a different generation now. I'm not saying they're not bad now, but they it, it was a different generation back then. And those were like some of the OGs that when MS-13 was originally created. These, I mean, they created them out of the military. Um, yeah. A lot of these folks were, and, yeah, they're hardcore. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. So you just violated your own rule there, Morgan. OG. OG. On, I thought you. I thought everybody knows what OG <laughs> is in this DNA. Original right. gangster, the OG. Holy cow! See what I put up with, Ken. Good lord. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how this interview is going to go. Oh, we're going to have some fun. Morgan's rules. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so so it was this female, um, you know, like I said, she was a, a, a prostitute, it, kind of a, a, a sad side story, but she was actually a lawyer. Her husband was a doctor. She got hooked on crack cocaine, um, stole oh his car, gosh. went down there, sold it, um, kept you know for crack the whole nine yards, um, and eventually uh, she you know had come over to our side and was willing to introduce me in. And, um, I was with these guys on and off for six months. Nobody thought the, the more of it, um, almost ended up in a drive by with 18th street because they happened to come by and, and, um, to, to shoot some rival game members. And I was in the middle of it, but it, um, yeah. So people are like, Hey, wait, a white guy can do this. Um, and you, so, but you said it was about going in with the story. So let's talk about your story. I mean, obviously she pretty much looks the part because she's been living the lifestyle. It was easy to see that. How did, what kind of, what was your story going in? How did you get past all of these preconceived notions that you have to be this color or this race or this gender to do it? How does a white guy from Boston, Harvard, get in there and start buying crack and doing this stuff? So I was her brother and I was trying to help her out, but that I also was trying to make some money on the side. So she was, uh, so I was buying drugs. <laughs> what a nice brother you are. Hey, I was. I'm going to buy crack. You can only have a little bit of it now. We're weaning you off of it, but yeah. I'm, the crack's for me. <laughs> That's right. But I was trying to, I was trying to get her out of there, but she was like, wait, I got some intro. And and so we were, we were down there and you know, I was buying for some folks and then they took me to their supplier and, and we were able to take off a pretty big supplier down that area. It was down in Rampart, Mariposa F. Mm. Well, we had uh, we had one of the captains, yeah, um, had one of the captains from Rampart Division that went through the whole uh, Rampart scandal and, and all that stuff. I mean, the whole movie Training Day was made about his division, Rich Moraz, yeah. Um, but but why did you focus? I mean, you're ATF, you're acting like DEA. Why are you buying crack? Why, why isn't that a DEA or a local street crime, you know, type of thing? Why is ATF getting involved in dope? DEA was on vacation, so we figured we'd fill the gap. Um, no, no, kidding. Hey, don't expect um, anything, okay? Yeah. DEA, don't expect anything. <laughs> no, we, we so we worked hand in hand with DEA. It was great um, out there, and um, this gang was particularly violent. There was a lot of lot of shootings down in Mariposa Ave in that area down there. So it was to get in. You know, the drugs were the easier way in to start buying some guns. And uh, they had a a, a a really violent uh, drug connection that they wanted to get somebody in to make some hand-to-hands from. And, and the reality is, is like, hey, if you could buy a stolen toaster off this guy, this guy's street name was Puma. If you could buy a st- stolen toaster off and put him in jail, then you did it. Whatever it took to get Puma off the street. Cool. You know, in every every place I ever worked, ATF and DEA got along extremely well. Extremely yeah. well. Yeah, it was the same out there. Um, we 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 had some fun times with DEA. We, we ended up in a surveillance Got a little bit lost and ended up in Mexico, which is probably a no-no in G, right? Ooh, um, I think so. And <laughs> so, hey, you just happened to end up at a bar too, right? Drinking it, uh, when you realized you were in Mexico. 
I wish the story ended that way. Once people realized we were in Mexico, they're like, don't anyone stop, turn around. We're all getting the hell out of here right now. So, uh, but yeah, no, we had some great, there was, it was a good crew there and it was a very, um, a lot of new agents out in DEA at the time as well. Um, so it was perfect. You just had a bunch of young folks, you know, most everybody was single and, um, l- listen, what else are you going to do? You're going to go to the bars and hang out and you're going to work. And that's, that's what we did. Yeah. Well, and this way you could hang out at the bars and work buying dope, <laughs> and, buying guns, right? Yeah, and it was a different time back then. (laughs) It was a blurry line from when work stopped and fun started. It was all the same thing. It was fun to work. Yeah, we're doing that. I just happened to make a couple of arrests at the bar. So uh, you said when you first got started, it was really hairy down there. What's what's one of the first hairy situations you got yourself into down there? You talked about, was it that drive-by you almost got shot at, or was there something else? Yeah, I mean, that drive-by was pretty hairy. Um, 18th Street had rolled up. Um, the cover team actually, it was ironic. I always bust a buddy of mine's, uh, a fellow agent, Carlos, uh, Canino always busts his chops. Here I am out doing, uh, the UC and he gets in a shooting, uh, go figure how that works out. But he, uh, legitimately this, this car went by a point of rifle and we all dove out of the way. And then the cover team, uh, ended up getting in a shooting with that vehicle, um, a couple hundred feet down the road. And, um, created all sorts of havoc for me. This is really kind of pre, there was like, this is when everyone had like the suitcase, not everyone. There were a few suitcase cell phones out there, but that's it. And, um, and I had just started dating my wife and she was doing UC in New York and I was doing UC in LA. And so I had the advantage, you know, the time, you know, by the time she was done at midnight, it was nine o'clock. But when I was done at midnight, it's three o'clock. And so, uh, but they stuffed me in a van because I couldn't leave the area. It was, you know, shooting, uh, but I couldn't be out there because they didn't, you know, want MS to know that I was a cop. And so I didn't get out of there until like eight o'clock in the morning. My wife was convinced I was dead. It wasn't the first time she was convinced that happened, but, um, that was, that was the first time it happened. Yeah. Like in today's day, you could just pick up your phone, make a quick or send a quick text message back then. Like you say, I remember those suitcase phones. I remember the bag phones. I remember that first Motorola brick I was carrying around. Yeah. Hell, if you run out of bullets, you just hit the guy in the head yeah. with that thing would take yeah. him out. Yeah. Plus, those the damn thing didn't weapon. work too well, but you look pretty cool carrying it. Yeah. It was a status <laughs> symbol. Right. I got a Motorola brick, baby. You right. know, it, it totally was. When you were an agent and you had that in your car, you were oh, like yeah. upper tier. Oh, yeah. This is like, who are you going to call? The only other person with the phone is yeah. a GS, and you certainly yeah. don't want to call him. The group supervisor, by the way. That's yeah. like I remember some guy saying, hey, we got a fax machine when they were first coming out. Said, well, the, who the fuck are you going to fax then? Nobody's got one. We don't got one. Yeah, but yeah. I got one, though. Fax me something. Nah, I don't have it. Now it's like, All matters. don't even have a fax anymore. So, but when you got out there, what's the process for getting to the point of where um, you start, you know, working on your own? I mean, are you like under, uh, there's like you said, you had, you, one of the agents had six trainees. How long are you like in training before they kind of say, hey, you know, you're on your own now. They cut you loose. Yeah, you're generally supposed to be in the program for two years. Um, and because I had started doing undercover um, work pretty early on coming out, and you're really not supposed to be doing it until you're off OJT, um, but they allowed me to. And then they ended up letting me off of OJT a year into it so that I could be kind of cut loose to um, to do undercover work. And, and listen, I, I I did undercover work. It wasn't like it was every day. Um, I did a bunch of it throughout my career, but you know, I ran um, – fair amount of investigations I was on our SRT team. So there was a lot of other things going on as well. And you couldn't do those things without, you know, being off of OJT as well. So now is there an official process to get you off of it? Or do you just walk in and the sack one day goes, yeah, all right, you're good to go. There's a memo that basically says you're good to go. And and that's it. You know, they put that forward and the sack signs it and, 
and you're special off. agent in charge. See, Murph, before he said anything, ha ha, there you go. Uh, he he would have covered it. You you just jumped the gun there a little bit. We just worry about you, Morgan. So uh, just a really quick side funny story though. That, so I got cut. They they actually wrote the memo so I could go out and do this. I was going to buy some explosive off of a guy out in Barstow, um, California, and so we go out there and we had they had a bunch of deals lined up and. So I go to meet this guy at his house and he meets me with a 357. He's got a 357 in his hand down by the side, which was not part of the plan. And he's like, come on in. And he's got a scanner and it's, he's looking for a wire, which I had a wire on. So I'm watching these numbers, you know, go by waiting to hear myself coming out the scanner. Um, and I'm trying to reach towards my jacket to, to make sure I can get to my gun. Anyways, the scanner goes by, it never does stop. So this guy gets his comfort level and he's, he's like, uh, and he was supposed to be selling me, um, some high explosives in, in a handgun. And so he's like, I got stuff somewhere else. You can, you can wait outside and I'll go pick it up and then come back. Well, sure. Shit. Okay. That's great. Well, I'm, you want to make sure somebody's going to follow him, right? He's going to pick this stuff up. So I had a, uh, a, a supervisor at the time. He's about 110. And so the, the cover team, you know, I'd gotten back into, and I had a radio underneath the seat. And well, I, you said he's ra- about 110. Did you mean 110 pounds or what? No, no, age. Um, they, they kept him oh. around longer than I probably should have. <laughs> I so, <don't> pounds too. <laughs> and it would become very clear why. So I had a radio under the seat of the car. And so I, uh, now, of course, I, I got a, a wire on. Um, but you never and they know should be that. listening to the wire, right? You would hope, but you, you never know. Like it, half the time, those things don't work. So, um, so I, I pull the radio and I'm like, Hey, listen, he just jumped into a continental. He's going to pick up the explosive in the gun. So you're going to want to follow him, blah, blah, blah. He'll get back here, make the buy, but then we'll be good to hit the location. So I hear on the radio, I hear the supervisor say, Hey, I got the point. So he's following me. He's like, all right, he's going left here, right here. And this thing goes on for a couple minutes. And then all of a sudden I hear, Oh wait, wrong car. This is actually oh. a Volkswagen. And I'm like, how the fuck do you mix up a Volkswagen oh. and a Lincoln Continental? So then I tee off. You could I'm put like, a Volkswagen in the trunk of a Lincoln uh, Continental. I teed off. I'm like, you old fucking bat. How the hell do you mix up? And I'm just yelling at myself because I'm in the car by myself. But I forgot I had the damn transmitter on, which is the one. It's the one time that thing works like a charm, and everybody in the car so. My buddy's are rolling when the, the officer over he's like, he heard everything that you said. So anyways, it was, oh. I got a good tongue lashing for that. It was an important <laughs> lesson learned, though. <laughs> lesson number one, remember who's in the room. I mean, yeah. just shut the oh. wire off. So oh, that's, well, that's well, embarrassing. Well, you know what? That's like the guys who go to conferences. They'll instruct. They'll have the wireless lavalier mics, and they'll be taking a break. And they forget to shut it off, and you hear their bathroom conversations. Yeah. They're coming in over the loudspeakers <laughs> in the conference room. Oh, you're coming in to take a dump. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's even worse. Well, let's talk. Well, hey, but, but you find, did you finally figure out where the guy went to get his explosives? What's the, what's the moral of the story here? How'd the case conclude? Uh, the moral of the story is we ended up getting several guns off him. We bought um, dynamite. Debt cord. Um, it turned out to be a great case, uh, and then we flipped the guy, and we were able to move that up from there. Everyone's, you know, one thing, you know, an ATF. Anyways, it was like, oh, hey, this guy's got grenades. This guy's got C four, and it never turned He's got out to missile be. launchers yeah. and nuclear tip like, grenades. Yeah, yeah, like a pipe bomb, maybe, and that was like still good. Um, but it was sometimes it would just be freaking a little black powder or whatever. But this was legit. I mean, this guy, they were stealing it from a military base out not too far from where we had met um, out there in Barstow. Wow. Good stuff. 
Now, what, what convinced this guy to flip? What convinced him to work for you? Was it the amount of time he was facing? Um, was he not as tough as he appeared when he first showed up at the door with the scanner and a 357 hog, you know, p- getting ready to point it at you? He was, I mean, he was a pretty hardcore game member. Uh, he had had a kid um, not too long before. And so I think that was the decider right there. It was like, hey, you're going away. He, he had a good record on him, so he was going to go for a long time. And um, and I don't think he was willing to do the time. So, yeah, he flipped. He actually gave some great stuff. Nice. Did his cooperation get his sentence knocked down a bit? It did. It did. And wow. rightfully so. He took a lot of bad bad folks off. Oh, that's that's the important stuff, too. But what's the rule you had, Murph, when uh, you had Boyd Holbrook and uh, – uh, Pedro Pascal out there. What was the first rule? Is it you know what? What was that? Boyd signed on this on the uh, on the uh, poster when he left. Yeah, they, we we had him working. So the two actors we've embedded them in the DEA Academy for a week, and they went through undercover class, and then they went to Hogan's Alley, and they had to do a two ounce meth deal. And we told him, said you don't go in a house because surveillance can't see. You. And so Pedro goes up and he does it everything right. You know, and the guy kept enticing to come. He's like, screw it, man. I'll I'll come back another time. He's like, okay, okay, let's do the deal. Well, Boyd comes up. He's going to be Joe Cool. He goes right in the house. Mongo comes out from the back room, pats him down, finds his undercover gun, and ends up killing him. You know, this is all simulated. <laughs> Kills him there in the living room. And so the the audiovisual people at the academy, it still hangs on the wall in the bar at the DEA Academy. <laughs> and he wrote on there, whatever you do, don't go in the house. <laughs> well, that's, hey, but hey, did you ever figure out why his little scanner didn't work? I mean, because that's, that's not something you usually see. Was he just scanning frequencies, or did he actually have a scanner that could detect RF transmissions? It was a scanner that was more picking up frequencies, and so I think that's where he made his mistake. I don't think he knew enough about what you know transmitters would be, you know, broadcasting on, and so um, yeah, so it was you know part of it was it was dumb luck. You know, well, that I think, had to make I your think some of those- shrink. Yeah. Well, I think some of those guys they buy the cheapest thing out there, thinking, oh, this is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. I had a guy use one on me, and it never worked. Yeah. No, it, it, you're 100% right. It, 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 and he was just sitting there. He was so focused on the numbers, watching it to see if it was going to stop. Like, I was able to get my hand inside my jacket, and I had my hand on the butt of the gun because I was like, this is going to become a draw. <laughs> see yeah. who gets there first if this thing stops and it starts talking. Action versus reaction. That's right. Well, but um, so how far are you into your career when you're doing this one? you just a couple years in on this one? No. So, um, no, I actually went into headquarters, came out of headquarters. I was a first line supervisor up in Boston. And so I got home, you know, and, um, and, you know, I had no intention of like, I was still doing UC and, you know, I do, you know, quick hits here and there for folks. There wasn't a lot of folks in, in the Boston field division at the time doing, you know, any UC work. So, um, so I would do some hits for the group and that kind of thing. Um, and then this, this case kind of came along and as a first line supervisor, you know, there's a rule now in ATF that first line supervisors can't do long-term, can't do undercover work at all. And that rule is the Ken Crook rule. Oh, really? Yeah. So your legacy. I am a legacy for is all the because, wrong reasons. Is it, well, it, it's obviously not because you screwed anything up. You made the case, right? What, why, why did they look at it that way to say they don't want uh, first line supervisors out doing this kind of work? I mean, obviously it takes you away from doing some of the other things, but. Was there an impact that they didn't realize that would happen because you were doing this work? Well, I think, you know, for the group, you know, you, the group that you supervise, you know, you're, you're gone for two years. And so what do they do with that group? And, and of course, and, you know, we'll get into this when we talk about the case, but I was never going to be the long-term UC. It was not the intent of this. But 
it keeps going and going and going. And so it's like, well, what, at what point are you coming back? And at what point should they put? So there was a, a female in my group, um, senior agent who acted the, the majority of the time and she did a, a terrific job. Um, and, and at some point they, they removed her and put in a, a current supervisor, but it created turmoil. Um, and so they were like, Hey, no more, like, you know, it, undercover should be left to GS 13s or below. Yeah, and, and you know, if you look at the table of organization, which defines how many supervisors and how many agents and analysts and all the all the different uh, job categories that go into an office, they're, they're not going to change. The, it, it would take almost an act of Congress to add an additional GS fourteen slot to get a supervisor in there to replace you. You know, and it's sad that it comes down to that. But that's uh, we're the same. We were the same way at DEA. You're not supposed to do any undercover once you get your GS fourteen, which is first yeah. line supervisor. And the thing about it, too, is that, you know, technically the supervisor of the investigation, so for the group that's running the investigation, is the same rank as I am. Um, so he doesn't really outrank me, but um, that was never an issue for me. I always had said, even when I, you know, had a psychopath as, as the first line supervisor over the case, I um, I got into an argument with him and he's like, you know, I'm in charge. I'm like, you are in charge. I'm the UC. That's, that's my role here. I'm not fighting you for who's in charge of this thing. I'm fighting you because... You're insane, and you're making bad choices. <clears throat> and did you say that into your wire so the rest of the team could hear? <laughs> oh, no, he, wrote, he wrote it there. in the book. He's yeah, got the yeah. guy's name in the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Psychos and 110-year-old uh, supervisors, you know, or guys on the case, man. <laughs> hey, well, let's let's rewind a little bit. Let's, let's start talking. Let's start laying some groundwork because um, eventually you start getting into the outlaw motorcycle gang world. So let's just talk about how did you, you know, what was the, because everything always starts off with some case, right? You need somebody needs some help or you do something, right? So what was your first dipping your toe into the world of outlaw motorcycle gangs? So I was in California and, and, you know, there's a lot of OMGs out in California. So I had worked some Mongols investigations. I worked the Vagos, um, which plays into this um, case as well. And so I had an interest in it, but I, you know, I really wasn't, like I didn't want to, you know, be pigeonholed or just specialize in one type of, you know, undercover work or cases for that matter. Because again, it wasn't, you know, ATF has what they call an advanced undercover program where, you know, that's what those folks pretty much all they do. Um, I never wanted to do that. I loved working cases. Um, I, when, when the game's all over for me, I'm going to go work somewhere for $10 an hour doing part-time investigations because, um, that's what I love doing. And so, um, you know, I just did kind of what came along, but out in California, there's a lot of, there's a lot of biker problems. And so just by the nature of it, you end up kind of getting pulled towards that. Now, was there a requirement you had to get a bunch of tattoos all over your body too? No, no. There, I mean, there wasn't, I mean, you have a, you have a role that you're, you may be looking to fill or what you want to look like. Uh, but you know what I found? I mean, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. It doesn't matter what you look like. It it's matters story. your story and it matters how you conduct yourselves. Like I know biker dudes who have freaking goatees down to their ankles and tattooed from head to tail who couldn't, you know, um, you know, <clears throat> buy anything undercover. They just don't have the the personality or the wherewithal to do it. Um, and I'm not saying it's, it, it's like anything. It's a skill set. You know, you quick on your feet, you can talk quickly. You can do some things like that. I'm not saying it's the end all be all. There are undercovers who walk around like the sun rises and sets in the crack of their ass. That's not, I, I think it's a, a great investigator, a great supervisor. Those are skill sets that are just as hard to come by. It's just that some people have the ability to do it and can do it and others should not do it. 
Absolutely. You know, I was in Miami and I got there in 87. I look like a cop. I grew up looking like a cop and I could work undercover in Miami. You know, it's, it's, it's all up here in your mind. You just got to make them believe you. So I'm, I'm going to tell you really quick. We were out in LA. I was on the SRT team and we had just finished an op. So we're all like helmets, gear, like geared. We had the bread SRT truck. SRT you know, is that, ATS version of like SWAT special response team. and Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. You're going to have to keep cleaning that up too. For now, the next couple don't hours. worry, man. We'll do it in real time here. I let you go one time. We weren't going to let it happen twice. Go ahead. So we have this bread truck and, and there's 20 of us in there. We just done some warrants actually down in Rampart. And, um, and we were talking to the supervisor and we're like, anybody can buy drugs in Rampart. And he's like, no, no. We're like, no, no, we really can't. Listen, you with your little gazoo helmet and your ATF vest on, you driving this bread truck, we'll get in the back. Guarantee you, if you pull up to 11th and Lake, you can buy crack. He's like, no, 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 no way, no way. We're like, okay, <laughs> let's just do it. So we did. <laughs> Gave, you know, we all pulled, ponied up some money, gave him some money, drove the bread truck down. This is the, you know, the truck that has a big spotlights on the side. Of it. He's got his kazoo <laughs> helmet on. He's got his ATFS, the whole nine yards. And when you pulled up down there, they would run to the car, you know, mm-hmm. or, or in this case, the bread truck. They would run to it. And so this the first dude who gets there, gets there, looks in the window, is like, whoa. And he backs up four steps. But he's like, now nah, I'm good with it, you know. And, and they <laughs> made the transaction. <laughs> 20 SWAT guys jump out of the back of the truck. We scoop him up and take him with us, and we flip them into an informant. But from that get, point on, 20 or a 50? The, the 20. It, 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 the, from that point on, that supervisor was like, all right, you got, I'm like, so but like, you know every what time- this guy's defense is in court? Can't you see his defense lawyer going, Your Honor, my client is so fucking stupid. He didn't have the mental capacity to form intent. He sold dope to undercover, or not undercover, but guys in ATF vest. Yeah. He sold to a cop. No, his, his defense would be coercion. Yeah. I was so scared I had to sell him the drugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's a hundred percent accurate story. He was actually a pretty good informant for for some time after that. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just... Well, it just shows you the level of some of the criminals we go up. Yeah, against, right? yeah. It's not our proudest moment, but it was the funniest. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no. I, I got, I got, there's gotta be people out there going, no fucking way. You, you tell me that story's like, no, no, no way I, that happened. I could bring 20 guys in who were in the back of that truck that would say the exact same story. <laughs> uh, fall over last, still laughing about it. Yeah. Oh, and can't you, this guy's gotta be one of those go, if you ever want to know sometimes how stupid people can be, this guy's picture pops up in the dictionary <laughs> under that, right? <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> so you guys are knocking you guys are slinging dope you know <laughs> what's the next you drive up in a mark patrol car and make them hand-to-hand yeah. you know yeah we, we weren't going to try to raise the bar any more than that that was what we would do <laughs> on friday nights <laughs> all right well let's let's keep going down this road so how did you so let's now talk about the path that leads you now into this book um, you know, your book, but this whole thing, the investigation with outlaw motorcycle gangs, like you said, you were doing it. It wasn't like tripping your trigger, but what, what was the tipping point for you? Finally, where did you say, Hey, you know, let's do something where you just brought into the case and it morphed from there or kind of give us the context, let people know how does something like this happen? Sure. So, uh, you know, fast forwarding. So I was in LA and I worked, I did some undercover with some bikers, but not long-term stuff like this, but was familiar with the culture and the gangs that were out there. Um, now did you ride a bike? I didn't, I grew up riding bikes. So I, I was well, very familiar with bikes. Let's, let's tell that whole story too. Cause, uh, mom and dad approved of you having a motorcycle, didn't they? No, no, pretty much. <laughs> so it's really my mother. Um, so my mother was dead sitting against tattoos 
guns and motorcycles. So I already mentioned I was the disappointment of the family for not becoming an accountant. So that only just added to it. So I, listen, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't lower my image any more than that. So um, yeah, not a huge, not a huge fan of any of those things. So like, again, I was in LA. Every time I come home, my hair would be longer. Um, you know, I just looked like more of a shit bag. And so uh, they were like, what the heck is happening? And then of course, when I did the infiltration on this, it was a new low of how bad I could look. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it might, they were, they were happy to, to go to mass with me on a, on a Sunday. That's for sure. Oh, I'll bet. But I, I was reading where, uh, I mean, I th- were you 10 years old when you went out, you and your brother bought a motorcycle and you hid it from mom and dad? How in the world did you hide we, it from them? We, we hid it in the woods. We put a tarp over it, kept it in the woods, and it was all good. Um, and we'd go out there ripping around. And, and uh, this is back, you know, like when kids would go out and actually play outside, yeah. you know, as oh, yeah. opposed to now you're in, in the basement and you're playing video games. But um, yeah, so we would go out, we'd go ripping around in that thing. We had a, a grand old time. Um, and they never were any smarter um, for it. They just, they never knew. But, and then, you know, of course they got older and, and road bikes and, um, you know, I always, always enjoyed riding bikes, but so left California came. So got married, started having kids and it, it was, I didn't want to raise my kids. Another thing against California, it's too far away from family. And so, um, you know, we were like, all right, the only way back at that time, the only way out of LA was if you sold your soul and went to headquarters because um, they weren't letting you off for any other reason. And so, so real quick before you get into that too, but you, you were married at the time. So was your wife from the East coast as well too? Was she from the area? Yeah. So my wife was from New York. And so, um, so when we got married, she came out to LA. Um, and so we were out there for, so I was out there about seven years. She was out there um, probably like two less. So, um, but I, it was I'm like, not okay. sure if we mentioned it yet, Ken, but your wife was an agent also with ATF, right? Yes. Yes, she was. She's retired now. Um, and we actually met at down at Fletzy. Um, but there was, you know, they call them Fletzy romances. Uh, this was not one of those. Um, not because I didn't want it to be. She Why was, are Fletzy romances just more temporary while training's going on? Pretty yeah, it's much. Called, it's called pretty a much. hookup. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And, and she made sure that 1000% this was not going to be that. And, uh, she held true. I tried. Um, but she held true and she's like, Hey, you want to date when we're out of here? Um, then, you know, I may be up for that. So, um, lo and behold, anyways, we, uh, ultimately got married and, and this is back in the day where you, in order to be transferred, you had to be married. It wasn't like engaged or anything else. They were like, you had to be married. So when they did, when we got married, they shipped her out to me, uh, because again, it's LA, you're not getting out of there. And so, um, so we were out there and, and the only way to get back East was to, one of us had to go to headquarters. And at the time we had two really young kids and then a third on the way. And so, um, that so made it wasn't sense for you to do the, do you the to take the hit, right? Yeah. yeah. So I did, um, was in headquarters, ran our international, uh, program for a couple of years and ultimately got out as a first line supervisor and got to go back to Boston. So where'd you live at when you were going to headquarters? So we were out west, um, so out in like the uh, Fairfax area and um, outside of headquarters. So yeah, so I'm yeah. over here in Ashburn. Murph used to the traitorous bastard used to live next to me pretty much before he moved to Florida. Can you see my suntan? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we love that area out there. I mean, it, it was awesome. The commute in and out of DC sucked, but uh, did, you, did you ever work with a guy named Scott Sweetow? I did. I did. Matter of fact, Scott and I remember that arson group I was telling you about. Arson? Did you say arson? Arson. He, he and I were in the same group um, when I came on the job. He, he came on the job probably about two weeks before me. 
Yeah, Scott was involved in one of my projects down at DOJ, uh, along with Derek Maltz. And Derek Maltz only lasted two weeks before he went in. I can't do this anymore. I got to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he did. I didn't know that was an option. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is. It depends. This, this, well, it it took us a while to get this project was on information sharing. So we had everybody from, you know, representatives from different agencies. But that's how I ended up working with Scott, learning a lot about some of the cases they were working on, which is really cool. Even some of the, uh, uh, Terrorist cases, terrorist financing, where they were buying cigarettes and forging the tax stamps and using the extra money as hard currency to send over. So really cool stuff. So you do your two years at headquarters. Did you get to travel international or were you just desk bound? No, I I did. So I I was in headquarters um, for about a year and a half. Then I became the chief of um, the international division. So I spent a fair amount of time in South America and Colombia um, Mexico, um, and in some of our other foreign offices, but, uh, it was great. I mean, I, I was in the UN negotiating a, a firearms protocol. Now where's this kid, you know, Irish kid from Boston is going to end up in the UN speaking on behalf of the United States, like hitting the little mic button, you know, where it turns red. And I'm like, I used to think these were the smartest people in the world. And I'm like, if I'm up here speaking on behalf of the United States, I got no respect for any of you people, <laughs> but we, it, we were over there. I learned a ton. I, re, I really did. It was, it was, it was an off, awesome experience. And, um, and then what was the most, what was the funnest country you went to? What was the one? Let's put it this way: If you were gonna go somewhere for a couple months to do vacation, where's the country you would go to, out of the ones you visited? I would say uh, Vienna. Oh, yeah. That was that was really nice. But I, I will say this: If I could go back and redo my career again, I would go to Colombia um, and I would do three years down there uh, because the work, like some of these, you know, foreign posts, and I'm sure it was the same for DEA. It's like some of them. You worked, but it wasn't really work. It was more kind of liaisoning type stuff. But in Columbia, they worked. And, um, and you know, for, you know, Columbia, of course, you know, the, and I'm t- talking to the wrong two people about this, but obviously the drug's coming up. But it was wait the exact minute. opposite. Wait a There's drugs in Columbia? Murph, you uh, never told me that. It's, He's talking it's about shocking. South Carolina. Oh, <laughs> okay. There, that makes, that makes sense, yeah. But, you know, think about the, the invert it is we are the Columbia of the gun world. And we're the ones supplying all the guns everywhere. So to be an ATF agent down in Columbia working that, like that's, and it was only one agent at one point that had two, but for the most part, it was one agent down there. So it was a ton of work and a ton of work with explosives as well. So if I could do it all over again, I, I would have spent time down there, um, you know, in a permanent assignment down there. Did you work with uh, JJ Ballesteros? I did. I came, I, so I became the chief after he had already moved on and came out of there. Bill Newell had just gotten in there, but, I, but I've met Jay, you know, throughout my career. Yeah. He was, I tell you what, he was, he was a godsend for us when we were chasing down Pablo. He was right in the mix. And it's funny because when, you know, the day after Pablo escaped from his prison, that's when the next day Javier and I go to Medellin. That's when we started living there for the next 18 months. Well, JJ jumped on board too because of the weapons that were seized and and he would trace those things down. I mean, he was like a, a dog with a bone, you know? And uh, so he just kind of stayed. And I think he was there a few months. And finally his headquarters said, where are you? And he said, well, I'm up there at the, the search block. And I'm like, get your ass back. You're not supposed to be there. <laughs> they were not happy at all. Man, that's, I, that's a guy you could call in the middle of the night and, and uh, he'd be right there with you. He, uh, he always had a great rep. It's just a, a solid street agent. Yeah. So did you stay, were you in Bogota then? Yes. Did you, stay at, did you stay at the uh, Andino Royale? I did. Uh, yeah, that was some, <laughs> there were some fun places. Uh, I have to ask the obligatory question. Anybody goes down to, did you ever go up to Montserrat and eat? No. Ah, okay. 
You know, yeah, I never I went up there till till after uh, we went down filming Narcos. That's the first. No, your kid family and I went up there. Oh, yeah. wow. oh. Um, for a little farm boy from Kansas being taken to the top of a mountain on a cable car and eating dinner. But our quick story on that, I may have, I've told this probably in previous episodes, but I was working with a guy down there. Uh, we were doing some stuff actually for the U.S. Marshals. It was on Plan Columbia, but we were non-official, let's put it that way. And uh, so we're coming into the country under a tourist visa, you know, and everything and just, you know, keeping a low profile. And we're staying at the Antino Royale and there's a couple of military, I can, you know, you can tell they're military guys, they're foreign affairs officers. So I start chatting them up. I'll, hey, what are you guys doing? Well, the guy with me just punched out of the agency. He'd been an operations officer, done time and, you know, over in the Balkans and worked, you know, a lot of neat stuff. And, but we're, hey, watch this. What are you guys doing? Where are you going? Huh? Can we ride with you? When are you going back to the airport? They're, oh, you know, just, they didn't want to say anything. So we see them later all congregating in the lobby of the Andino Royale. And there's this guy there wearing the freaking khaki vest, got kind of the beard and stuff, freaking agency, probably his name, Paul, Bob, Mike, you know, something, <laughs> right? And they take off because we see Colombians with them. And so him and I are hungry. We go, we, we decide to walk around. So, you know, you walk out of the Andino Royale and I can't think of where it was, like a couple of blocks, but we walk into this restaurant and it's like, there's nobody on the bottom floor, but it's like, Hey, you know, uh, you know, Hey, we're here. You know, we, we just looked around and this lady walks up to us and she goes, Oh, your party's upstairs. Okay, so we walk upstairs, and guess who? It's all the same guy. So I start the guy, Paul or Bob, walks over to me, says, I'm sorry, guys, this is a private party. And I look at him and say, hey, what do you guys do? Can we join? You know, hey, we're Americans, too. He's like, no, nah, this is this is a real private party. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think we almost got fooled everybody. <laughs> yeah, except, except the problem was leaving the country uh, or coming into the country. I was practicing my Spanish, and they said, what's the purpose of your visit? And I meant to say, turista. And we had been talking about the FARC, you know, and the M19. I said, a terrorista, and that did not go over very well oh, with wow. DOS and the immigration people <laughs> trying to enter the country. Anyway, I first, you know, uh, you know, I, I diverged, so uh, you guys get to drink now. So uh, digression. So hey, but, but back to that. So uh, you're back now, and you're starting to, you know, you want to work gangs or the, the motorcycle stuff. So start. How does this progress now? Keep going. So so actually, I'm back up in Boston, first line supervisor. There wasn't really a whole lot of focus on biker gangs, not to say they weren't investigations. Actually, DEA was doing a bunch of work up there. ATF was too, um, but not like an infiltration type stuff. And um, so I had uh, a group that was, you know, working everywhere but the city of Boston. So North Shore all the way up to New Hampshire, all the way down to Rhode Island. <clears throat> so we were all over the place and, and busy. Um, but a, the other group, the Boston group, had gotten a, a call from somebody who had, said they had some information and, um, you know, it was a guy who was living near, um, somebody who, who had information on the devil's disciples. So they brought him in and, and the guy lays out the story and says, Hey, I can introduce somebody in there, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And, and so, um, they wanted to check us. So they, they interview him, but they want to check out the story. And there weren't a lot of folks that were doing a lot of biker work up in Boston at the time for ATF. And they knew I had, so that, you know, these guys and their friends of mine came by my office and were like, "Hey, um, want to bounce some stuff off you?" So they did, and so um, I'm like, "Hey, it sounds legit, um, but throw him, you know, throw him on a box, see, you know, see how he does." And so they did, and he did fine. Um, and so then it was going to be like, "Hey, um, you know, this guy could do an intro," and then it was like, "All right, well, if you're going to do an intro, you got to make sure this guy's, you know, wife, you know, because he's married and he had just had a kid." And so it's like, "Hey, can this?" can the wife stand up to the story? Because if he's, you know, he's going to have to know, she's going to have to know you. Like if there's an, a, 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 you know, some sort of setting where it all comes together. So, um, so I went up to meet the wife and she had literally, um, 
given birth like three days before. And um, so she's got this newborn. It's freezing cold, Boston winter. And um, and so meet her. And within two minutes, I realize she's way smarter than he is uh, and that she's going to do just great. And I wasn't as confident with him, but um, she just had her shit together. So um, but in the middle of this, it was so cold that the water pipes froze from the hot water heater. So she couldn't, she couldn't get any hot water. And she's trying to make formula for this baby. And um, so we went down with a blowtorch, whatever. Long story short, um, the shit bag lived near them, uh, was having the same problem, ran into him, help him get his pipes going, um, start talking, you know, uh, back and forth. And he's like, hey, I'm having a party this week. You know, a weekend, I'd love to have you, you know, come by. And so, you know, there you go. It's just, it was dumb luck. I was up talking to her, end up running into him, you know, freaking hot water heaters freeze. And end up helping him out. And that started a relationship without being like, hey, let me introduce you to my friend Bob here, who does, I know he looks like a cop, but he's really not one. Like, you know, would you mind selling him some guns? Um, it was just kind of just happened. So um, you, you couldn't have planned it. And, and as we share the story, you'll hear me talk about dumb luck a lot because there's a lot of dumb luck that happens in these cases. Well, if it wasn't for dumb luck, you know, you wouldn't get a lot of these breaks in the cases, but that's just the way it goes, right? Dumb luck is just really preparing for the stuff. But Kind of rewind for a little bit of that. You mentioned the Devil's Disciples. So um, how big of a gang were they? Were they just more of a local? Were they a regional gang? Any affiliations with any of the big names that we might know? So they are more of a regional, a uh, couple chapters. Um, they are mortally opposed to the Hell's Angels, as are the pagans. Uh, but they are aligned with the pagans. And unbeknownst to us at the time, um, they there was a group of them that were looking to patch over to the pagans. Patching over means... Hanging out with them, you get accepted. You turn in one set of colors. You may have to prospect. It all depends on the agreement, or you may not. Um, and you, you know, bec- ultimately become a patch member of that new club, the Pagans. Explain that real quick. So we've we've done it with a lot of guys, like say like Jave Dobbins and Steve Cook. But when you said, but you're if you're a fully patched member of one group, and they say you got to prospect and come over, you're basically starting at the bottom again, right? Yeah, and sometimes you will, and sometimes you won't do that. Some clubs would say, hey. We're going to take this this whole puppet club. So puppet clubs are like the support clubs. You know, like it's like playing, you know, you have the Red Sox and then you have the minor league team. The minor league team are the puppet clubs. And so every once in a while, they'll convert one of those clubs up and they'll say, hey, we'll patch you over straight, you know, patch for patch. More times than not, they'll have them prospect. You turn in, you patch, you prospect with them, and then you become a patch. If you make it through prospecting, um, you would become a patch member. And just in case our listeners don't understand what the prospect, uh, what the definition, what is a prospect before you get patched? And the what's worst, the difference between that and being patched? The worst fucking time of your life. Um, <laughs> that, that's how I would define it. Um, it is, it is, it, it, it's a period of time for the pagans. It's um, generally six months where you are an indentured slave to the organization. You, um, you don't belong to any chapter. You belong to the pagan nation. They, can have you do anything they want you to do. They uh, physically abuse you, mentally abuse you. It is not a uh, a fun period of time. So it's like a hazing initiation time where they, uh, I guess they're trying to feel you out and test your loyalty. Yeah. So there's, there's basically three phases. There's there's the hang around phase that is, it's all fun and parties, right? You go to their parties with them. There's no expectations. Um, they're kind of feeling you out. Is this, is this person legit? You're feeling them out. Is this something I really want to do? You can kind of see how they conduct themselves, not in a criminal environment, but in a party environment. 
Next phase after that is they have to ask you to prospect. You have to agree to prospect. You go through background checks. You have to pay fees. Like this, there's a process to it, and then you have to survive the, the prospecting phase. And then, uh, and if you do, and a lot don't, but if you do, uh, then you become a full patch member. Well, talk about that for a second. You mentioned um, background checks. This almost sounds like they're applying for a federal law enforcement agency, right? So, are these guys getting just the the information you pay for for like some a lot of these online databases, or do they have some of their own sources where they're checking to see? I mean, because part of the thing too is that gets into the UC role. You got to have a your identity. You got to do a good job at backstopping because small things can go through the cracks, and that's one of the things you guys did good when we we're talking to Lou Veloza, you know, and Jay Dobbins, your UC schools. You guys, that was one of the key things, right? Do we have a good? Is my legend backstopped to the point it's going to survive a background check from a group like the Pagans? Yeah, and the fact is, you never know. It's one of the things you live in fear in the entire investigation. Um, you know, my backstory was put together well, uh, but it gets, and we could talk about it later, but <clears throat> it gets seriously tested. Um, and and you just hope, you've got your fingers crossed that, hey, this is going to withstand what they're putting it through. And so, and you never really know. It's not like they hand your script and tell you, hey, here's all the hurdles you're going to have to jump over. Basically, as you go, and we're skipping through some of this, but when you go and you fill out that application, they're taking that info, and they do hire prior investigators to do that. They also have sources inside of DMVs and, and in some cases, law enforcement. Um, they've got a lot of in, – in some cases, they'll do polygraphs on folks. So there's a lot that's going on. There's a lot that's going on. And, um, and so – but you don't – again, it's not like, hey – Tomorrow, we're going to run your background checks. Not like when we did our background checks, like you kind of knew the process, what was happening. You never knew what the hell they were doing. And they were constantly checking your backstory, constantly checking it. They would go through my bike. They'd go through the bags. I'd set my bags up so I'd know if they were in them. They would go through them. They would rifle through the stuff to see what was in there. There's one individual. And I, and I always, when I speak to larger groups about this, I, I always say this. People are like, oh, yeah, no, you, but you just tell the story and whatever. I'm like, all right, listen. I'm going to ask you to tell me a lie about last night. I want you to make up where you went to dinner, who you went to dinner with, what you ate. Specifically, if you got a steak, was it a medium rare, what have you? What was the environment you were in? What time did you get there? What time did you leave? Any one of us can do that, right? Anybody can sling that, just wheel it out there. But then I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you about it again a week from now. Now tell me that same story back. That's where it gets hard because it's not an ingrained memory. It is a lie. It is just floating out there. And so you have to try to remember these things and keep them straight. And you, by the way, you have your own life that happens to be going on at the same time. So you get the real stuff and you got the fake stuff and trying to keep that straight for two years is not easy. Well, then even asking questions like how much was the, uh, how much was your tab? How much of a tip did you leave? Who was the waiter, male or female? I mean, to your point, they could go back and even double check that if you're really at the restaurant last night. So that's why I said it's, it's, it is a difficult thing working under like that, you know, without a real lifeline. Um, you're going all the time. I, the guys we talked to, all the episodes we talked about from Presser, I mean, Chrisser, um, to, you know, a lot of the other guys is like, you hope, like you say, you hope it's been backstopped good. You hope it's going to survive, but they could walk in one day and go, hey, you're a fucking cop, bang, you know, and you just have no no clue. Yeah, and there's times, there's times during the investigation, like, and, and I'll share them with you, that it was like, I was sure I was done. I was sure they figured out who I was. I wasn't sure how they figured it out, but I was sure they did. 
and thought it was game over. And, um, and ultimately, you know, they didn't, you know, of course now they'll tell you, they all knew I was a cop, but they still sold. <laughs> yeah. We knew you were cops. That's why we kept and, selling you guns and bringing yeah. you into these parties. Epic because we're yeah. smarter than you. We're out thinking you. Yeah. yeah. I always love people like that. Cause you, you look at them like, what class of dumbass does that put you in? <laughs> we're setting up an entrapment defense for our eventual trial. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah. But you know, to your point though, the, the, going back to the back, ground uh for a minute and without you know giving up all the trade secrets or anything but you you have to pick wisely when you do this stuff and and i didn't um uh you know some stuff i i had a long-term undercover identity going credit histories all these things are tied back you know for years um so that part was fine but you know like um go out and get insurance like the feds don't have insurance so you have to go get insurance well you have to have a driving history so i create my driving history when I create my driving history, I made, I'm like, Hey, I'm a biker. I'm going to be a bad driver. So I made all this shit up. Well, I made myself so fucking bad that I couldn't get insurance. Um, so I ended up having to get pool insurance and it cost the government probably four times what it should have cost for insurance. Cause I wanted to be a bad driver. So like, hey, you done good. Yes. Yeah, so just, it, it, you know, so I was a, also, I was a convicted felon. And so I could have picked any felony. I could have just picked forgery. I could have picked something similar. Driving know, just, while suspended, yeah. but no, you had Whatever. to pick one. So I go and pick that I kick the shit out of a cop. Well, that comes back to haunt me later in, in yeah. some interaction with law enforcement that um, I could have picked anything, but I picked that. So anyways, uh, you know, I, I didn't always make the right choices when it came to my background. Uh, and the, these stories are in his book. I mean, your book, I don't, I'll, we'll give you a shout out later on as well. But this is a book that when you start reading it, you can't put it down. You know, it's, if, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, <laughs> you done good. Well, Murph can't put it down because it takes him an hour to basically read a page. You know, he's just very slow reader. Well, so, now luckily he has pictures in here. So I was, you know, lots of pictures. Uh, very there good. That was a coloring book. Hey, but but so how does working the, uh, 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 the 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 devils and stuff get you into the pagan? So is that just is that the first step, or where do, where does that you know what's the what's the logical progression here? So initially we weren't even sure about the pagan connection there, and so we were just kind of. You know, I was just muddling around a little bit with the devil's disciples, see what they're up to, see if it was even worth doing, because these these are a big commitment, not only for the undercover, but for the agency expenses and what have you. Um, it became very clear, very fast that the intent was to open up a pagan chapter up in Massachusetts. So they the, the furthest north chapter they had was in Long Island, New York. So they were jumping all the way up to Mass, which is pretty much unheard of. But it was also very concerning because they are mortal enemies with the Hell's Angels. And the Hell's Angels have a lot of chapters in Massachusetts in that area. So it was like, all right, this, this, the stakes got raised. And, and management and everybody else was in – the folks that knew about it were very interested in moving forward. Because it was a unique opportunity to actually get in to a chapter before it's even created. Now, ultimately, you know, um, the chapter uh, doesn't end up getting created, but um, we didn't know that at the time. And so it was like, here, here's our opportunity to get on the ground floor and stop this thing before it spreads. You, say, you know, we've talked about, you've mentioned several different uh, biker gangs. In terms of uh, criminal violence, where would the pagans rate amongst all the bi- outlaw biker gangs? By far, the two, when people ask me, hey, describe the pagans, by far the most violent of the big gangs, um, and by far the cheapest of the big gangs. Like when Hell's Angels are at, you know, out on a mandatory, they're at four or five star hotels. The pagans are in a tent in a field in the middle of friggin' Youngstown, Ohio, and it's 110 degrees. Um, they don't have two nickels to rub together. They are all just about the violence, the intimidation, the brotherhood, that that's their center identifier. They make money, don't get me wrong, but they spend it, you know, 
on on what they do. They're not they're not buying houses or anything like that. And you mentioned mandatory. Can you explain that? Yeah. So a mandatory is an event that happens. So the pagan would have the pagans would have four mandatories a year. Uh, mandatory is where it's exactly that mandatory. If you are a pagan, it is mandatory for you to be there. If you could physically be there, meaning if you're in the hospital getting chemotherapy or whatever, they'll give you a pass. But for the for the most part, you must be there. And in certain mandatories, they'll allow support clubs. Or in 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 our case, there was um, the Mongols. Their national um, officers came to a, a, one of the last mandatories that I was at, um, which created a whole other shit show. But um, so th- those are the events you have to go to. And as a prospect, you have to be a prospect through two mandatories in order to to make it to a full patch. And that is a horrible, horrible event for a prospect. <laughs> So, hey, Murph, here's a bit of history. Uh, guess where the uh, Pagans Motorcycle Club, guess where it originated from? Don't tell me West Virginia. You're close. Prince where? George's County, Maryland. Oh, boy. PG County, man. You PG, County. PG County. County. <laughs> Who would have known crime evolved out of PG County? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it just makes sense now. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> It was born there. Um, wow. But yeah, so the, and they have a long and, and rich history, and uh, and it continues on to this day. Jeez. So, but as you're working your way up, um, what at what point do you determine what the goals, I mean, you got to start doing some kind of an op plan. You know, I mean, there's, there's tactical stuff and strategic stuff, but how do you start laying this thing out to start determining what are going to be the goals of this investigation? Do you start targeting people or do you just start targeting crimes? activities i mean kind of give us an idea of you know kind of the inside baseball thing is how do you go to how do you start building out because you're committed like you say for two years at least right well no that's the funny thing about this is it we didn't know what it was going to be that was part of the the issue and that's part of what was tough um for me and, and for my family but um it was like hey let's see what the devil's disciples are doing okay the devil's disciples are gonna a group of them are gonna patch over and become peg it's gonna start a chapter okay so let's keep hanging around with them. Let's see how this is going to go. And I was, it, it, we were always planning on bringing somebody else in to be the long-term UC, but the further I got in, the less likely I was going to be able to get out. So we started going through that. And so then next thing you know, they're, um, they're going down to Long Island to an event with, um, with the pagans. And so they invited me. Um, I, I couldn't go to the first night because it was for, uh, bikers or, or folks that they were planning on or bringing it, you know, bringing in as hangarounds. Um, but what had happened is they had a prospect who got uh, murdered. He got stabbed through the eye and through the brainstem. Um, and there was only one other person in the room and it was a pagan. And so um, you can imagine that created havoc for, for me, but also for my agency. They're like, Hey, wait, we want you to get down there and prospect. And the last guy who tried that, got stabbed through the eye of the brainstem and is now dead. Ooh. Uh, oh, so, yeah, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah, so they're like, um, we're not sure this is such well, a good what's idea. What's the upside right to this then? Yeah. Put me in, coach. So, <laughs> you know, the plan is like, oh, well, you know, let's just see how this, you know, plays out. So um, they're, um, so the, the Devil's Disciples, a couple of the guys that I meet um, are um, this guy, Billy, and um, and a guy named Boston Bob. And so they're two of the ones that are going to patch over. So they were heading down that Friday night. They were allowed to get down that Friday night, and I was going to meet them on the Saturday. So they head down there, and um, they go to this bar called Mobos, and and there's an event there, and it's a memorial for this guy Bennett who was murdered. And um, they're in there, and in in Boston, Bob, I'd gotten to know him. I'd hung out in some bars with him a little bit over there, you know, a span of a couple months or a couple weeks, really. 
And then I also knew, got to know Billy, both fancied they were going to be president. So I was like Switzerland. I was staying in between these two because I didn't know which horse I was going to ride, you know, but I knew it was going to be one of these two. And, and, but I would hang with Billy down at a, at a bar called Murphy's in South Boston. And so we would go down there and we, we you know, hang out. And so they each be telling me the kind of size of the story. But one of the things Boston Bob had said is that Billy had been fucking around with some of the uh, old ladies that hang out with the pagans and old ladies are basically their, their girlfriends, wives, you know, uh, what have you. And, uh, Boston Bob had warned him, this is a bad idea. Anyways, it, you know, Billy was doing what Billy does. So when they go down there this Friday night, um, they go walking into, uh, Mobos and, and a female that, um, Billy had, had hooked up with had, sees it come in it's like oh shit and now she's the uh old lady of um one of the chapter presidents so big problem and and she's like shit he finds out with this this is gonna be a shit show i don't know her accusation if it's true or not we never got that far into this but basically she tells her new uh boyfriend like hey that guy over there raped me um so you can imagine this is not going to go over well um now billy is just skipping along, having the time of his life, hanging out with a bunch of pagans, drinking beers. Um, at some point, he gets summoned into the bathroom. And, you know, for all those who aren't familiar with bikers, the bathroom is not the place to go hang out when you're in a biker bar because that's where everything goes wrong. So your piece of advice would be like to Boyd Holbrook, don't go in the room, don't go in the house, <laughs> don't go in the bathroom if you're yes. invited by an outlaw motorcycle yes. gang. Yes. Yes. Uh, although it is where they do some of their business, right? So you never know. It's a fine line, you know. Uh, but bottom line is you got to take a leap, just go outside. But so this, so at some point they, uh, summons Billy into the bathroom and he's thinking it's because they're going to tell him, Hey, you are the president of the new chapter because they were going back and forth who it was going to be. So he goes in the bathroom and, um, and in goes, uh, a couple, a couple of characters. So, um, uh, PETA and, and, uh, Roblox and JR and Tracy go into the bathroom and, um, ultimately, uh, they, beat this guy near to death. I mean, they beat him unconscious. He wakes up. Um, he wakes up to them pissing on him and he hears them joking about don't cross swords. Then they beat him some more. So he's unconscious again. Um, they go to Boston. Uh, so then they bring Boston Bob in the bathroom. Now Boston Bob doesn't even know that he went in the bathroom. He walks in and there's this, you know, lump of shit on the ground, bleeding and unconscious. And he's like, Oh shit. I'm next. You know, this must be some sort of ritual or something. Who who the hell knows? But anyways, they're like, Hey, take this piece of shit back to your motel. They were staying in some shitbag motel, uh, and wait for us to come. We're going to cut his dick off and throw him in the dumpster. So they haul him out, throw him in his car. Dude's covered in urine, just freaking moaning and groaning. Um, and initially Bob leaves thinking he's going to go to the, the, the motel. And it dawns on him like, Oh fuck. I left a whole bunch of people know I left Boston with this guy. If I don't show back up in Boston, he ends up in a dumpster without a dick. It's coming back on me. And so he decides, "Uh uh-uh, I'm out. He gets on the highway, gets on 95 North, and he's going back to Boston. He gets to Somerville Hospital, opens the door, and fires this guy out the door, leaves him on the doorstep of Somerville Hospital. And and I get a call at about 4.30 in the morning. I get a text saying, trip's off. We'll explain later. So – as an undercover, you know, you got that phone on all the time. And so it pings at 4.30 in the morning, which is never a good thing. Like nobody's texting you at 4.30 in the morning saying, hey, we've got a free breakfast tomorrow. You know, we'll see you at 9. 
it's always fucking bad news. All the times yeah. I got a call at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, I didn't see my bed for 48 hours. Yeah. You know, it's like and nothing good happens at nothing. that time of morning. Absolutely nothing. This is no different. And so then I'm like, well, shit, I'm supposed to be going. We got cover teams going down, all this stuff. So I try to reach out to Bob. I don't get him. I try to reach out to Charlie, um, or I'm sorry, Billy, and I don't get him. And so I'm like, shit. Um, you know, and I, and so I left a message, whatever, um, waiting, waiting. I finally tried, uh, Billy a couple of times. I finally get him and he's like, uh, he's like, listen, this is the last time you're ever going to hear from me. Um, don't do this thing. These, these guys are animals. You don't want any fucking part of this thing hangs up. And literally I never spoke a word to him again. Um, I learned, and I still didn't at that time have an idea of what happened. I eventually talked to Bob and he's like, I told you it was going to go bad with him. And eventually I learned what had happened. I had heard it multiple times, um, through, uh, different pagans, you know, over the course of the investigations, I got to know them more. They would talk about it and joke about it. Uh, cause they all thought it was pretty damn funny. Um, but anyway, so now I've got a dude who stabbed to the eye and the brainstem. Now I got the next guy who's going down there. who almost had his dick cut off. So ATF's not loving this whole idea anymore. Like they're like, this is just not the way to I go. I can just see the memo you're writing. Hey, look, in spite of all of those things, I still think it's a good idea to go work this gang. <laughs> exactly. So it, 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 I will say the, the, uh, the sack of Boston was a huge supporter. Um, and he really had a lot of trust in us and that we knew what we were doing and that we knew when enough would be enough. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of time went by, we weren't sure where it was going to go. Um, and then an opportunity came to go down there as a hang around. And, um, and so, you know, it was talked about amongst the agency, like, okay, how, how, you know, are we going to do this? And it was agreed upon that we were going to do it and go down. (laughs) I'm just, (laughs) and here's the fun part too. I want you to tell me about the conversation you had with your wife to say, oh no, look, I think this is a good idea. I think we should go forward with this. Yeah, and here, here's the problem. I can't bullshit her because she can go on and read the damn reports. You know, so there's no there's no sugarcoating any of this. I'm not saying she would do that, but I wasn't. You know, it was like here's here's yeah because I had to explain why I wasn't going to New York the next day or whatever. Um, and yeah, it didn't go over well. It was yeah, you, you, you know you fucking moron. You know, you've got kids. Um, you know all that stuff. And and um, okay, but we well, did. That's what I'm saying. We know it. You know, we know you went forward with it because there's a book about this. So, <laughs> how many beers did you have to have before you went? Fuck it, hold my beer. I'm in. <laughs> hey, players! That is the end of part one. Part two comes out as always on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.